A judge in Georgia is expected to set a trial date today for former President Donald Trump, who's charged with trying to overturn the 2020 election results. It's Monday, August 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a vigil was held in Jacksonville, Florida yesterday for the three black people shot by a white gunman over the weekend. Police say the killer targeted his victims because of their race. Also, after a series of rate hikes, a look at what might be the Fed's next move on interest rates. And this hour, some people in San Francisco are protesting new driverless cars by putting traffic cones in front of the vehicles, immobilizing them. The traffic cone protest is an example of how things in the real world can really confound machines, even ones as sophisticated as this. In sports, Red Sox lose, partly sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The victims of the mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, were remembered during a vigil yesterday. Will Brown of member station WJCT reports a white gunman opened fire at a Dollar General store on Saturday, killing three black people. Hundreds gathered under oak trees in an oft-forgotten neighborhood Sunday to remember Angela Carr, A.J. Laguerre, and Gerald Gallion. The three were killed in an act of racial violence on Saturday afternoon in a Dollar General store in Jacksonville's Grand Park neighborhood. The Reverend John Guns of St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church knew Gallion for years. And I wept in church today like a baby because my heart is tired. We are exhausted. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office says the shooter, 21-year-old Orange Park resident Ryan Christopher Palmeter, obtained the weapons used in the racist rampage legally. For NPR News, I'm Will Brown in Jacksonville, Florida. Emergency crews are working to contain a series of wildfires burning in multiple parishes across Louisiana. The blaze broke out near the Texas border nearly a week ago. Aubrey Uhas of member station WWNO reports the fire has burned an estimated 60,000 acres and destroyed more than 20 structures. Multiple communities in and around Beauregard Parish are under mandatory evacuation orders as firefighters chase flames that keep changing direction. Sheriff Mark Herford says the parish has the resources it needs to keep fighting the fire, but he doesn't yet see the end in sight. I don't really see us being able to to completely have this situation in hand until we get some good long rain. The fire is just one of many burning in the area and across the state. Louisiana's unusual number of fires this year, more than 400 this month alone, have been caused by severe drought and record-breaking heat. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Juhas in New Orleans. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo is taking part in a series of meetings in China this week. The talks in Beijing and Shanghai come as trade relations between the U.S. and China have hit historic lows. Raimondo says she's looking forward to having constructive discussions on areas for potential cooperation. It's a complicated relationship. It's a challenging relationship. We will, of course, disagree on certain issues. But I believe that we can make progress if we are direct, open, and practical. Romano says the economic relationship between the U.S. and China is one of the most significant in the world, with the two nations sharing more than $700 billion of trade. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR News in Washington. 
Three U.S. Marines were killed when a military plane crashed on an island off northern Australia during a multi-nation training exercise on Sunday. NPR's Dia Hadid reports several other service members are hospitalized in critical condition. Len Nataris, executive director of the National Critical Care and Trauma Response Center, said in a press conference that three Marines remain in hospital, one in a serious condition. Five others were discharged. It's not clear what caused the MV-22B Osprey to crash while transporting 23 Marines. The aircraft has been associated with other fatal crashes. The Marines were participating in a days-long joint military exercise with forces from Australia, Indonesia, the Philippines and Timor-Leste. Dozens of Marines are based in Darwin and hundreds more rotate through every year. It's part of a realignment of forces in the Asia-Pacific to face an increasingly assertive China. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Fremantle. Emergency crews in Canada are working to contain a series of wildfires that are burning across parts of British Columbia. Hot temperatures and high winds are fueling the blazes burning around the Northwest Territories town of Hay River. Crews are also battling a wildfire that broke out earlier this month near the Northwest Territories capital of Yellowknife. That fire forced the evacuation of nearly all of the city's 20,000 residents. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston City Councilor Tanya Anderson says she was mugged over the weekend while observing conditions at a tent encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass. According to a police report obtained by the Boston Globe, Anderson said a man charged her and took her cell phone while she was taking pictures Saturday night. She was not injured. Anderson says she was in the area to do some research on an ordinance Mayor Wu is expected to file this week. The plan would, in part, authorize police officers to clear tents in the area. On Beacon Hill, some state lawmakers want to override a budget veto from Governor Healy. She rejected funding that was slated for what are called community action agencies. Nancy Cohn explains. The 23 agencies in the state help people whose electricity is about to be shut off or who need food or help avoiding eviction. State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa says she refers her constituents to these nonprofits almost daily, and the $7.7 million reduction in funding could mean there are fewer agency staffers to assist. So she and others are asking the House leadership to address it. We are trying to convince them that when we come back in in September that this is an override that we should take up with urgency. The governor's office says the additional funding in recent years was never intended to be permanent, but was part of the state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Members of a neo-Nazi hate group say they're responsible for a protest at a hotel in Woburn. Members of NSC 131 protested outside a Red Roof Inn Saturday. That hotel is housing nearly 60 migrant families. Woburn police tell the Boston Globe no one was arrested. Over the past year, the hate group has also protested drag queen story hours across the state. The Ashland Commuter Rail Station is now closed and will stay closed through the fall. The MBTA says the shutdown will allow crews to do repairs to the station. Shuttle buses will take riders to other stations on the Framingham-Worcester line. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation. 
committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. The Red Sox host the Houston Astros tonight at Fenway. The Sox lost to the Los Angeles Dodgers yesterday 7-4. Partly sunny today, it'll be in the mid-70s, mostly cloudy with fog overnight, temperatures in the 60s, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance for showers in the morning, it'll be in the 70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Who was the man responsible for a mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida? He opened fire over the weekend in a Dollar General store, killing three people and then himself. All of the victims were black, and the white shooter posted his racist views online. Now authorities are saying a little bit more about him, so we have called Will Brown of our member station WJCT in Jacksonville. Good morning, Will. Good morning. What are you hearing from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office about the gunman? Ryan Christopher Palmeter is the gunman. He is 21 years old and lived in neighboring Clay County with his parents. Hmm. His parents called police after Ryan told them to look onto his computer. There they found a suicide note and writings that were filled with racial slurs used against black people. It was reported to the Clay County Sheriff's Office, but by then the shooting was already taking place. Here's Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters. He was incensed by the gunman's writing. The manifesto is, quite frankly, uh, the diary of a madman. He was, he was, I mean, he was just completely irrational. What we do know is that Paul Meter also went to Edward Waters University, Florida's oldest historically black university, but mm. security there asked him to leave. He then drove to the dollar store, which was nearby. Authorities said he did not have a, a prior police record, but in 2017, he was hospitalized under the Baker Act, which meant he was considered a threat to himself or others. He was released after 72 hours. The sheriff also noted that the two guns used in Saturday's attack, an AR-15 style rifle and a Glock, were purchased legally. The gunman used one of the guns to take his own life at the scene. Now. After the shooting, I gather there have been vigils in Jacksonville for the victims. What more are you learning about them? Yes. We are learning that there's overarching sadness and anger. There's sadness for the victims who were identified yesterday as A.J. Laguerre Jr., who's 19, Gerald Deshaun Gallen, who's 29, and Angela Michelle Carr, who's 52. Those at the vigils also expressed anger for what happened, as well as a resolve to ensure that this type of violence doesn't happen again in Jacksonville or anywhere else. I heard repeatedly that people are being taught to hate each other and the way to eliminate that and such shootings such as what took place Saturday is to teach against racism. I had a chance to speak with Paula Finley. She's the principal at Jacksonville's Arlington Elementary. Because this is about teaching and learning from an early stage in age. And, and unfortunately, in my 30 years, I've learned how children are planted with those seeds of doubt or dislike or distrust. So the community is thinking broadly about the future and about to, how to prevent other shootings like this. And at the same time, investigators are looking into this incident specifically. Where does the investigation go now? 
Yes, the sheriff's department is looking into Paul Meter's background, and while they have said that they believe that the shooter acted alone, they still want to know more about who he was associated with, whether he had any known affiliations with hate groups and other organizations. Yet the FBI has also said it is open to federal civil rights investigation because they are calling the shooting a hate crime and will be examining Paul Meter's social media and anything else that can help with the case. Will Brown of Remember Station WJCT in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now let's hear from Florida State Representative Angie Nixon, whose district includes Jacksonville. Representative Nixon, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to note that I was looking at a map. Edward Waters University, where the gunman went first, is less than a mile from the Dollar General where he opened fire. So he's moving through a specific neighborhood along a specific road. What's that area like? That area uh, is the Newtown, the Newtown area, as well as the Grand Park area. Um, yeah, I've actually done some work over in the Newtown area uh, before as an organizer. Uh, in, in certain parts, it is a very close-knit group. Uh, however, it is an under-resourced area. Uh, you know, it's a low-income communities are in parts but then they also have specifically like around the newtown area there there are former educators um and community leaders that that live there diverse community right yes it's, it's diverse but it is it's primarily african-american gotcha there is often some ambiguity about the role that race plays in a violent incident. You know, what was someone really thinking? What do they admit to really thinking? But in this case, there seems to be no doubt at all based on the shooter's manifesto and what he did. How does that affect the way that people are thinking about this? Folks are scared. Folks are frustrated. Uh, people are tired of the rhetoric that they hear from the leadership in our state. Uh, they have, they are the ones who basically helped fuel <laughs> these types of actions. They've emboldened these types of behavior for the past few years. And honestly, it's just a way in which people uh, it's just the way in which they've done it to, to really just throw out red meat to a base because they want it to gain cheap political points, but it's really hurting people. At the end of the day, it's hurting people. Wait, I, I want to name names here if that's what you're comfortable doing. You said the leadership in your state. Are you saying that Governor Ron DeSantis and others who've, who've led this kind of campaign against what they see as woke indoctrination and that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, for, for sure. We know that the anti-woke, the stop woke terminology was nothing more than a dog whistle. Woke if you replace it, 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 it's black. They have a problem with black people and their anti-black policies and their continually attacks on the black community are, are illustrate that perfectly. Over the past few legislative terms, we have seen a concerted effort for Ron DeSantis to silence black voices, to to silence uh, black pain, to devalue our humanity, to erase our history, and people are frustrated and tired. I am so saddened by the loss of Angela, Anolt, and, and Gerald, but, you know, I am angry. We are angry that leadership in our state continue to perpetuate this hateful violence through rhetoric. We've just got a few seconds left, but I want to follow up on that. Governor DeSantis came to an event over the weekend 
uh, in the community. He was booed. And then a local leader said, whoa, 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 take partisanship out of this. Let him speak. And he did promise aid. In a few seconds, how would you view his response to the immediate incident? I believe his response was very hollow. And the fact that he still could not call the man a racist, he still did not uh, let everyone know that it was black lives that were lost. He's afraid to say certain things to upset his base because he wants to run for president and win. I, in fairness, I'll have to note as we end, he did say that people were targeted because of their race, but you may be right, he didn't say racist. Representative Nixon, thank you so much. Thank you. Florida State Representative Angie Nixon from Jacksonville, Florida. Nearly three weeks after deadly wildfires swept through parts of West Maui, community members are honoring the 115 dead, as well as the 100 still missing. NPR's Kira Joaquim brings us a story of one Lahaina teacher leading efforts to remember local children. Kylie Adolfo is a third grade teacher at Princess Nahiena Ena Elementary School in Lahaina, and she has just one hope. I want people to remember their faces, not just names. While most schools in the area remained closed after the fires, she and a group of teachers decided they needed somewhere to remember the students they've lost. We wanted a visual representation of the people we love. We wanted to see each other, to share each other's spirit. They've created a memorial here at Kilauea Mauka Makai Park, roughly a mile from the water, perched along a mountainside with sweeping views of the now decimated Lahaina town Adolfo says before the fires, this park was the place to be for kids. Coming down the hill every day, you see the the children running, just running. And they stop right here to be picked up by their parents, waiting for their friends from other um, schools from the top side. The memorial includes posters of two young victims and an ahu, a native Hawaiian altar made of stones from a local stream and native plants. Adolfo, who's native Hawaiian, visits the park daily to tend to the ahu, water its plants, and greet visitors. On this day, she's talking to Trinette Furtado and Kamiki Carter of Maui Rapid Response, a locally run disaster response team. Cherry cookie, chocolate cherry cheesecake, peanut butter, vanilla fudge. Let me give you a hug first. The two were delivering food, water, and ice cream in the neighborhood when they spotted Kylie and decided to help her publicize the memorial on Facebook. Are we doing it under one minute? Because I know this just is a thing. There's no, just do it. Okay. I'm not, I'm, Adolfo like, is I'm trying to get the word out and encourages anyone who's grieving to share their memories here. I'm hoping that they, they'll continue to come because the story will continue so no one forgets. Kelly Perez also teaches at Princess Nahi Ena Ena Elementary School. She and her husband drove up to deliver supplies to a nearby community resource hub. She taught one of the deceased students seven-year-old Tony Takafua. We had just started our first day of kindergarten. Everybody was there, and he stood up very proudly, and he said, I'm tall because I'm Tongan. And I said, yes, you are, sweet boy. Now let's have a great year. For her, having a place she can come and share memories of Tony, like this one, have helped her grieve. Even just being here for the short time I've been here, we've already had other people stop up and drop lays, and it's it's just a really nice place to mourn together. Meanwhile, West Maui teachers are going back to work this week. The state education department is holding meetings with them about how they'll approach school reopenings. But for Adolfo, the thought of returning before she can account for her students is too difficult to imagine. I've been here only a few years, 13 years maybe. And that would be an average of 20 students each year, 230 students. 
And I tell my friends that. 230 students that I'm, I'm looking for. But how am I going to teach? I'm going to go to a school and I'm not going to see any one of them worrying about where are my students. Something that won't be known today, tomorrow, or perhaps for weeks to come. Kira Joaquim, NPR News, Maui. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, some call it coning. It's the new way activists in San Francisco have found to immobilize driverless cars. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The West African nation of Niger has been a bright spot of democracy. Now a coup is risking the country's democratic progress and the fight against jihadi groups across the region. Niger is known as the frying pan of West Africa. Anything that happens in Niger affects multiple countries. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A mix of sun and clouds today, and we'll have high temperatures near 75. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Mia Martinez. A lot of parents worry about how much time their kids spend on their smartphones. Hannah Jadagu's folks are probably happy that she did because it launched her music career. This is Hannah Jadagu's song, Sundown, which was recorded on her iPhone 7. Home recording was just a hobby when she started doing it in middle school and posting the results. I literally just was making songs on my phone and I guess it connected with a few people and I wasn't like seeking out a record deal. I was sort of just in my room in Texas making songs. She's since moved from Mesquite, Texas to New York City where she's a sophomore at NYU and she has a new album on Sub Pop Records. You know, that's the label that signed Nirvana. Her album is called Aperture. Jadagu started working on Aperture when she was 19 years old, and she just started her first U.S. tour as a headliner. So I had to ask, how does she manage a full course load and a long concert tour like the one she just recently finished? 
I took a year off of school because I knew myself and I knew that I could not juggle both things. But when I just have festivals here and there or like a two week European run, I just make sure to do my work on time or ahead of time and communicate and hope that the professors are nice. <laughs> Isn't that terrifying? Because, okay, it's like for someone to take a load off because they know they want to be able to handle the load they have better. Yes. It's frightening, I think, because it's like, will I ever get that back? Oh, my goodness. My tour starts the same day as the first day of school. So I'm going to have to take a leave. But that's something I haven't conquered. <laughs> it's like I always hold on to my dream of like going to school and getting my degree. And so it's always an internal battle. She's doing a lot of internal battling on this new album. She sings about struggling with faith, family, and of course, love. What is it about love that makes it so pop song writing friendly? It's just a very universal concept and we see it everywhere in media, like film and television, you know, even in video games, like we see it everywhere. So how could it not be a go-to writing topic for artists? There's a song, Admit It, um, and, and you sing, why is it our conversation easily comes to an end? I can sense all your frustration. Should we even try again? I, I gotta know, like, what was that? <laughs> you know what's so funny? People thought this song was like a romantic song, and it I totally get that. It kind of sounds that way. I mean, <laughs> set me straight. No, I was just talking about like when me and my sister were like not, we were besties and we're always besties, but there was a moment where you know, they were going through their own things and I was just not doing my due diligence as the younger sis to check in and to help out. I take such small interactions, that could have been like one interaction, and then I'm making it sound so big because I think sometimes that's the job of the songwriter. <laughs> So I think when someone hears your voice and hears your song without seeing you, they're going to think indie music. Yes. I say that because indie music predominantly is associated with white artists. Yeah. So as a, as a young black woman, I mean, have you encountered any problems in maybe getting your music heard or when people see you for the first time after hearing your voice? Yeah, I think that a lot of the problems tend to come from the labels. Um, and by labels, I don't mean <laughs> music labels. I mean, just like the way that people tend to label my music. I think sometimes people assume, you know, they just hear warning sign and they're like, okay, this is an R&B artist. And that is when I might have a qualm or two, because I think that people tend to look at 
you know, me and they see a black girl and they're like, well, she's got to be making like alternative R&B. <laughs> and that's definitely not what I make, like on the grand scheme of things. Does it bug you though? that we, Like when someone is surprised, I, I've, I've done this a long time, Hannah. So I've learned mm -hmm. not to, and I'm in, in radio too. So I've learned not to be surprised when someone's voice matches or doesn't match what we think their face should be like. Yeah. That's the way radio goes, right? So yeah. does that bug you? No, I don't think I've actually ran into problems with the whole people hear my music and then they see my face. Because I think now we're in a time where you hear something, you're going to automatically want to know what the artist looks like. But yeah, I've run into instances where if I tell someone, oh, I make music. And they're like, well, what kind of music do you make? And then I say, you know, alternative indie stuff. Then it gets a little quiet. You know, that's where I've sort of had, <laughs> that's where I've sort of had weird interactions. <laughs> they only really believe me when I kind of have the guitar around, but that's just not feasible for everything, for every I mean, yeah, the guitar is like a telltale <laughs> sign, right? I mean, that's indie Yeah, music. that's a giveaway. There you yeah. Go. There you go. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing, but <laughs> yes. That is Hannah Jadagu. Her first album is called Aperture. Hannah, thanks a lot for sharing your story. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Thousands of migrants have been sent from Texas to Chicago, and many are staying in Chicago police stations as they wait for space in the city's shelters. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A federal judge is expected to set a trial date today in one of the criminal cases involving former President Donald Trump. It's the one brought by special counsel Jack Smith, stemming from the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith. Smith has argued that the public deserves a speedy trial and resolution. Trump's team says there are so many documents and so much testimony they need to go through that they need more time. Trump is running to retake the Oval Office while simultaneously being prosecuted at both the federal and state level for his extraordinary efforts to cling to power. Trump's attorneys want the trial to begin in 2026. Trump is facing charges in three other cases. They include one stemming from his handling of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida after leaving the White House and his most recent indictment on state charges in Georgia. Much of Florida's Gulf Coast is under a hurricane watch. It includes Sarasota, Tampa, and Gainesville. Forecasters say Tropical Storm Idalia will likely strengthen into a hurricane today as it enters the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. It's expected to make landfall along western Florida early Wednesday. Currently, Idalia has top sustained winds of 65 miles per hour. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Boston police say the shooting that affected the annual Caribbean Carnival celebration had nothing to do with that event. Eight people were hurt in the early morning shooting on Saturday in Talbot Avenue in Dorchester. It caused hundreds of people to flee the area and seek shelter. Police say the shooting was caused by an altercation between two groups nearby. At least four suspects charged in the shooting are expected in court later today. Members of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe plan to restart talks to build a casino in Taunton. They're set to meet with city officials to discuss a new proposal for the area. Ground broke on the first light resort and casino in 2016. Construction has been stalled amid lawsuits from nearby residents. There's no timeline for when the project could get underway. Scientists in central Massachusetts are finding poison ivy grows faster in warmer soil. Their observations appear to confirm earlier studies and anecdotal evidence that climate change benefits the plant. More now from WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel. The researchers warmed soil in the Harvard forest by about 9 degrees Fahrenheit, and poison ivy caught their attention. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. Jackie Mohan is an ecologist who studied poison ivy for decades. She says it also grows faster and becomes more potent with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I use the phrase bigger and nastier. They were actually making a more poisonous form of what makes it poisonous, which is a carbon-based compound called urushiol. That could have consequences for the roughly 80% of people allergic to poison ivy and for the balance in the forest ecosystem. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Former Red Sox Mookie Betts hit a home run and drove in three runs yesterday at Fenway. The Sox lost to the Los Angeles Dodgers 7-4. Tonight, the Sox begin a three-game series at home against the Houston Astros. The teams split a four-game series in Houston last week. Rockland golfer Megan Kang won her first LPGA tournament. She won the CPKC Women's Open yesterday in Vancouver in a one-hole playoff. It's Kang's first win in nearly 200 tournaments. Highs in the mid-70s today under partly sunny skies. Tonight, more clouds move in and it falls to lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs back in the mid-70s. There's a chance of showers mainly after mid-morning. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. The Federal Reserve wrapped up its annual summer conference at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, over the weekend, offering Fed watchers a few clues as to its next move on interest rates. We called one of our favorite Fed watchers, David Wessel, to find out more. He is director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, let's think this through here. The Fed has raised interest rates more than five percentage points in the past year and a half. 
Then they come to this summer conference and they end up talking to other important figures in the financial world. Are they going to lift interest rates further? Well, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, gave an emphatic maybe to that question at Jackson Hole. He pointed out that the Fed has raised interest rates a lot and the bond market has raised interest rates a lot, which has pushed up mortgage rates. They're now above 7 percent, highest in more than 20 years. He acknowledged that many measures of economic growth have slowed and that it takes time for Fed interest rates to work their way through the economy. So perhaps the Fed has done enough, he implied. But then he added that the Fed is, in his word, attentive to signs that the economy may not be cooling as expected. He pointed to robust consumer spending, and he underscored the Fed's commitment to get inflation down to 2%. So that led people to believe that they're certainly not going to cut interest rates anytime soon. They're going to hold them high for a while. Right now, markets are betting that the Fed will not raise rates in September, but they put 50-50 probability on another rate hike, either in November or December of this year. So we've concluded they either will or won't raise Absolutely. interest rates. See, you could be an economics reporter, Steve. <laughs> That's perfect. What data might push them one way or the other? Right. The Fed talks incessantly about being data dependent. On one hand, they're looking at inflation. They look at something called the personal consumption expenditures price index, not the consumer price index, which is more widely known. Hmm. That's been coming down. But Powell said two months of good data aren't enough to build confidence that they've really conquered inflation. And he's especially eager to see inflation in healthcare, food services, transportation, and other services come down. We get a new reading on that index on Thursday. They're also very focused on the labor market, which has cooled some, but is still pretty hot. The unemployment rate is historically low. Employers are creating lots of jobs. And the number of job openings, though down, remains unusually high. So Powell made clear that if the job market doesn't continue to cool off, he is likely to raise rates again. Now, we get some data on job openings tomorrow on Tuesday, and then we get a big report on the job market on Friday just before Labor Day. Can you give me an idea, David, of the scene at this Jackson Hole conference? I mean, Jerome Powell is there. He gives a speech. But there's other people there, his counterparts from Europe, from Britain, from Japan, lots of important people from around the world. That's right. And there's also a number of economists, many of them from academia, and a whole cast of reporters hanging on every word. I was kind of interested in a speech that the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, made, where she said that the economy has changed so much, it's hard for central bankers to be confident that they know what they're doing. Not very mm. reassuring. She talked about profound changes in the labor market, AI, the urgency of transition to uh, away from fossil fuels and the fact that the global economy se seems to be fragmenting into competing blocks with rising levels of protectionism. But I thought in what was perhaps an ominous portent, my friend Nick Timrose of the Wall Street Journal reported that a bunch of central bankers and economists were forced to retreat during a three-mile hike in Grand Teton National Park on Friday when they hit a thunderstorm with hailstones and that turned hiking trails into muddy streams. Didn't have a very good forecast, I guess. David, thanks so much. You're welcome. David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. Driverless cars now roam San Francisco any time of day or night, picking up passengers like taxis. But it's been a, a bumpy road the last few weeks. One issue, street activists who have figured out how to immobilize the robo-taxis in a low-tech way. Here's NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr. It's dark out by the time members of Safe Street Rebel meet up with their e-bikes. They're wearing face masks and refuse to reveal their identities. That's because it's unclear whether disabling driverless cars is legal. Oh, let's go. 
Get in front of it over there. Not in the crosswalk, not in the crosswalk. One of the group's organizers explains the point of all of this. We thought putting cones on these was a funny image that could captivate people. And one of these self-driving cars with billions of dollars of venture capital investment money and R&D just being disabled by a common traffic cone. The anonymous group uses street theater shenanigans to fight against cars and promote public transportation. Its newest target has been the hundreds of driverless vehicles run by the companies Cruise and Waymo. The group figured out that if they put an orange traffic cone directly on the hood of these robo-taxis, it confuses the car's sensors and shuts it down. They say they don't like the city being used as a guinea pig for this new technology. I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with just the fact that we are beta testers, unwilling beta testers. Safe Street Rebel has ground rules. They don't cone on bus routes, and they won't go after a vehicle carrying a passenger. But otherwise, any busy street is fair game. As they wait on a corner, an autonomous vehicle pulls up. They run into the intersection, cones in hand, only to see people inside. These passengers know exactly what's going on. No one's in it. No one's in it. No! Oh, you're good. <laughs> what are you doing? No, you're good. Have a good night. <laughs> Coning driverless cars has become a viral sensation in San Francisco. Protesters in San Francisco are trying to stop self-driving cars from expanding. They've been roaming the streets of San Francisco. Using traffic cones to prove that truly autonomous driving is not only not ready for prime time, but something too easy to tamper with. A cruise spokesperson told NPR that intentionally obstructing the driverless cars, quote, risk creating traffic congestion. It's unclear why the cones disable their vehicles, and neither Cruise nor Waymo responded to questions on how this is happening. The traffic cone protest is an example of how things in the real world can really confound machines, even ones as sophisticated and finely tuned as this. Margaret O'Mara is a history professor who studies the tech industry at the University of Washington. All new technologies are greeted with a combination of fascination and fear. It's like, wow, this is so cool. And oh my gosh, the robot overlords are coming. And nothing really encapsulates that better than an autonomous vehicle. Earlier this month, California decided to allow Cruz and Waymo to expand their programs and provide robo-taxi service 24-7. Since then, a driverless car steered into a construction site and sunk into wet cement. Nearly a dozen others got confused after a concert and became paralyzed, blocking the streets. And a cruise vehicle carrying a passenger collided with a fire truck. We don't really need traffic cones to show how vulnerable they are. The Safe Street Rebel organizer says the group isn't anti-technology. Many of them say they're actually tech workers. At a busy intersection, a couple activists see their next robot victim turning a corner, a Waymo. No one is inside. They run out and put the cone on the hood. All right. Looks good. Let's get out of here. The car's side lights burst on and begin to flash. And then the vehicle sits there immobile in the middle of the street. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Monday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, presidential contender Vivek Ramaswamy is positioning himself as a younger Donald Trump. We'll talk to a GOP strategist about how successful that approach might be. A reminder to T-Riders this morning, the new fall schedule is now in effect. The T says that should mean more frequent service on the red, orange, and blue lines. The fall schedule on the commuter rail won't take effect until October 2nd.
Partly sunny and mid-70s today, mostly cloudy and low 60s tonight, a chance of patchy fog early tomorrow morning, then showers are possible around mid-morning, otherwise cloudy and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit, see art on both sides of the harbor, closes September 4th, icaboston.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Boston-based Clavio is planning to go public. The marketing tech firm filed for an initial public offering on Friday. It's the first major tech company in the state to do so this year. A new airline will begin offering direct flights between Bermuda and Boston this week. Bermudair is the first airline based out of the island. It'll offer all business class flights from Logan Airport six days a week. The inaugural trip takes off this Thursday. Two of the nation's best hotel bars are right here in Boston. That's according to new rankings by USA Today. The Fed at the Langham in downtown Boston ranked number five on the top ten list. Oaklong Bar and Kitchen inside of Fairmont Copley Plaza was just behind at number six. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including performing arts organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's the final Monday in August, and this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Chicago says it has received 13,000 migrants since Texas and others began busing them to blue cities last year. The city's shelters are full. Many are sleeping at police stations, and when those fill up, they sleep outside. Recently, the city cleared out two stations where there were reports of sexual misconduct against migrants. Now those stations are housing migrants again. We have details from Michael Loria, who reported the story for the Chicago Sun-Times. Michael, what's known about uh, the allegations of misconduct? Uh, Yeah, so those came out in early July. And it was a couple of uh, allegations of sexual misconduct about some officers and migrants staying at a Westside police station. that pretty quickly caused a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of attention over there in in the city at that time. And soon afterwards, the stations were cleared out. Um, And then a little while after that, allegations also came out at a Northside police station, which led to those stations being cleared out. Since then, however, there haven't really been many updates at the end of July because of the amount of intense media attention at the the matter. Mm the uh, city's um, police accountability um, office released a sort of unprecedented update saying that they had not found any uh, victims in the investigation. But since then, they say that the um, investigation is ongoing, but they don't have any further updates. Is that why they're putting the migrants back into those stations? 
that's that's basically it yeah so since then the city has also received a lot more people i mean i think that was early july and i think since mid-july or um in the past month basically there have been a doubling of the number of people staying at police stations and also at midway and o'hare uh well, that's gone from around 700 to a little over 1400 in that time so that's meant that at some of the stations they've been severely overcrowded you know folks who are arriving there are like basically sleeping one after another inside the station and the the folks that are the latest to arrive are having to sleep outside um so at some of the stations we've had you know it's over 100 people inside so um oh. this was kind of expected to to people expected them to be in using these stations again but um yeah and briefly uh, michael what kind of support do they get from the city and from volunteers so the city actually doesn't do a whole lot at the police stations itself um they rely on a lot of different volunteers to be taking care of the police stations that includes for donations for um food uh clothing and medical supplies as well all right michael loria staff reporter at the chicago sun times michael thanks yep thank you This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, some patients taking the diabetes drug Ozempic or the weight loss drug Wigovi are reporting that the medications reduce cravings for alcohol, nicotine, and even opioids. It's 7.49. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Authorities say they're investigating Saturday's shooting that left three black people dead at a Dollar General in Jacksonville, Florida, as a hate crime. A federal judge is expected to set a trial date today in the case against former President Trump for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And much of Florida is under a hurricane watch as Tropical Storm Idalia approaches the Gulf Coast. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Mid-70s today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. Temperatures fall to the low 60s tonight and it grows more overcast. Tomorrow showers are possible in the morning, otherwise cloudy, and back to the mid-70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston.
The pandemic exposed new lows in basic trust in government and in other people, making it even harder for medical workers to do their jobs. That was the first time in my career that I had people say, no, we, we don't believe you. But the sharp political divide in the U.S. has cost us, including lives. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. On a warm afternoon in August 1963, 60 years ago today, Martin Luther King Jr. stood behind a microphone at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. More than a quarter million people had gathered that day for the March on Washington. King was scheduled to speak for four minutes. He went a little long. And that speech has lasted very long in the national memory. NPR's Jessica Green reports. In the days leading up to August 28, 1963, the mood in Washington, D.C. was anxious. The March on Washington for jobs and freedom was advertised as a peaceful demonstration to advocate for the civil and economic rights of Black people. Here's an announcement from the Freedom Now Party promoting the event. We are requesting all citizens to move into Washington, to go by plane, by car, bus, any way that you can get there. Walk if necessary. But historian Taylor Branch told NPR in 2008 that many people in the area expected riots and mayhem. This was an overwhelmingly white culture and white country, and the media uh, presumed that you couldn't assemble 100,000 black folks in the nation's capital with political grievances uh, without a lot of them running amok. The Washington, D.C. police force brought in nearly 6,000 officers, and the government brought in an additional 6,000 soldiers and National Guardsmen. Liquor sales were canceled in the District of Columbia for the first time since the end of Prohibition in 1933. A plasma was stockpiled. Major League Baseball canceled not one, but two Washington Senators games against the Minnesota Twins for fear that baseball fans would be casualties of the riot. Roger Wilkins, who at the time was an official in the Kennedy administration, joined the march with his wife. He spoke to NPR in 2008 about racial overtones around the event. I remember that the members, Southern members of the House and the Senate, by and large, told their secretaries to stay home that day and lock the door so they wouldn't be raped. And still, despite the hysteria and efforts to cancel the march, Thousands of people from all over the U.S. came to Washington. It was like a church social. I mean, people were happy. Uh, People were greeting each other. Parts of families from different parts of the country were reforming and almost having little family reunions. It was that kind of uh, uh, feeling. The march included a three-hour-long program of performances and speeches by civil rights and religious leaders. The Eva Jesse Choir sang, We Shall Overcome. Civil rights icon John Lewis, who would later become a Georgia congressman, called for America to wake up. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Daisy Bates, a mentor to the Little Rock Nine, gave a tribute to black women fighters for freedom. Your presence here today testifies that no child will have to walk alone through a mob in any city or hamlet of this country because you will be there walking with them. Thank you. Martin Luther King Jr. volunteered to close out the program. 
I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. King is reading from a script. He begins speaking about the Emancipation Proclamation, a document intended to free African Americans signed 100 years earlier. He preached about the country's long history of racial injustice and urged the audience to hold the nation accountable and fulfill their founding promises. Signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And 11 minutes into his speech, he suddenly looks up from the podium and out at the overflowing crowd. Historian Taylor Branch says gospel singer Mahalia Jackson called out to King. Mahalia Jackson, who had just sung, and she was standing behind Dr. King along with lots of other people. A number of people say that Mahalia Jackson kept urging Dr. King to tell him about the dream. And so, King goes off script. I say to you today, my friend. His most famous words that day were not planned. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. For those of us who were born in segregation, as I was, we went away, many of us, I among them, euphoric. Again, Roger Wilkins, who was in the crowd. And I remember we were yelling, freedom now, freedom now, everybody. Yeah, freedom now, baby, you gotta have it. In the days after, most news reports didn't even mention King's speech. Newspapers focused more on the crowd size and the fact that there was no violence. Today, King's words are memorialized as the I Have a Dream speech. But his message 60 years ago went far beyond that famous line. And some civil rights activists argue that history has whitewashed a lot of his more radical ideas. Acclaimed journalist and author A. Peter Bailey attended the march and spoke with NPR in 2020. That was a powerful speech. It's almost criminal when they have reduced that man to I have a dream. Where he talks about the founding fathers of this country gave our ancestors a, a promissory note. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And we've come here today to cash that check. Now, to me, that should be the quote, you know, that is, that is memorized from that speech. You don't hear, hear nothing, any programs and events. All you hear is, I have a dream. King's original typewritten speech was given to a college basketball player from Villanova University named George Raveling. On the day of the march, Raveling was working as a bodyguard, standing behind King on stage. And after the speech, he impulsively asked King for the paper copy. Raveling kept that speech locked in a safe for decades before donating the artifact to Villanova University. The school loaned it to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, where it's currently on display today. Jessica Green, NPR News. Jesus, speak to my soul. Speak, Lord Jesus. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. 
Mid-70s and partly cloudy today, low 60s tonight, and even more clouds move into the area, setting up overcast skies tomorrow that may give way to showers around mid-morning, otherwise overcast and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was booed yesterday at a vigil for three black people fatally shot in Jacksonville in what police say was a racist attack. It's Monday, August 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the judge overseeing the election conspiracy case against former President Donald Trump says she intends to set a trial date today. Plus, the yellow-legged hornet has been spotted in Georgia for the first time. The invasive species kills honeybees and threatens the agriculture industry. Also, some patients taking popular diabetes and weight loss drugs say the medications also reduce cravings for alcohol and nicotine. And this hour, researchers say climate change is making poison ivy in Massachusetts bigger and itchier. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. Partly sunny in the 70s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Attorneys for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows are doing court today. They're expected to ask a federal judge to move the case against Meadows from state court in Georgia to a federal court. Meadows is one of 19 people indicted in Fulton County over alleged efforts to overturn the state's results of the 2020 election. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE reports former President Donald Trump is also among those indicted. Meadows and several other defendants say they were acting in their capacity as federal officials, potentially allowing state charges to be heard by a federal judge, and a jury pulled farther afield from Atlanta. Emory Law Professor Jonathan Nash says if that happens, it could complicate things for prosecutors who want to try all the defendants together. Some defendants might have a better claim to removal, and it's possible only those prosecutions would be removed to federal court. But Nash says it's not clear how this will shake out. If any defendants end up in federal court, state charges remain at play, which are not subject to presidential pardon. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Authorities are investigating the mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida on Saturday as a racially motivated hate crime. A white gunman opened fire at a Dollar General store on Saturday, killing three black people. Sabrina Rozier is a relative of 29-year-old Gerald Galleon, who was killed in the attack. Loving, a jokester, hardworking, dedicated father. He would give you his last. He never missed a beat in his daughter's life from birth to his life was taken away. 
Police say the shooter fired multiple rounds before turning the gun on himself. Authorities say he had legally purchased the firearms that he used in the attack. Today marks the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, which was led by Martin Luther King Jr. NPR's Tamara Keith reports President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are planning to mark the anniversary together. According to the White House, Biden and Harris will meet with some of the people who organized the original March on Washington 60 years ago, as well as members of the King family. There's a symmetry to this meeting, coming on the anniversary of the initial Oval Office meeting between President Kennedy and Dr. King on the morning of the march. Later, Biden will deliver remarks at a reception. Progressive activists, union members and others are all in Washington to mark the anniversary and highlight the work they say must continue. As many of the economic and racial disparities Dr. King drew attention to in 1963 persist to this day. Tamara Keith, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. Syria says Israel has hit the international airport in the northern city of Aleppo with airstrikes. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports the attack has temporarily grounded service. Syria's Ministry of Defense says Israeli planes attacked in the pre-dawn hours of Monday morning, damaging a runway. No casualties have been reported. The airport has often come under aerial attack, most recently in March when it closed down for a period. Israel has conducted hundreds of airstrikes on government-held parts of Syria, although it rarely acknowledges these operations. Attacks on air and seaports appear to be an attempt to hamper the shipment of arms to Iranian-backed militia groups that fight alongside government forces in the Syrian civil war. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. Starting Wednesday, travelers will no longer be required to show a negative COVID test to enter China. Speaking through an interpreter, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin made the announcement today. Inbound travelers will no longer be required to take a pre-departure nucleic acid or antigen test for COVID-19. Beijing ended its tough domestic zero-COVID policy last December after years of restrictions that at times included full city lockdowns and lengthy quarantines for people who were infected with the virus. Stocks across Asia closed higher today. Markets in Japan, China, and Hong Kong all posted gains on Wall Street. Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to file a proposal this week to give city police more power to remove tent encampments from the area known as Mass and Cass. The mayor is already defending her plan to deal with homelessness and drug use in the area. She told WCVB's on the record that efforts to get people into housing and substance abuse treatment since she took office are proving effective. Now, 149 people have moved all the way into permanent housing. We've served 500 people through that system overall, thousands more referred to treatment. And so we are getting there, but this is a a big move that will boost the public safety of it and uh, move into a different phase. Wu's strategy also includes creating new temporary shelter spaces for people experiencing homelessness.
We're in the final days of the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The link between East Boston and downtown has been closed for nearly two months because of a major reconstruction project. It's scheduled to reopen in time for the Friday morning commute. Once it reopens, riders on the blue line of the T will have to pay regular fares again. Also, the MBTA says commuter rail riders will no longer be able to flash their Charlie card to pay for their fares. The artificial intelligence program ChatGPT is not a reliable source of information about cancer treatment. That's according to a new study about from Brigham and Women's Hospital. As WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports, researchers say patients should always consult with medical experts for their treatment options. Researchers posed questions such as, what is the treatment for breast cancer? They say ChatGPT's answers were often incorrect. Dr. Danielle Bitterman, radiation oncologist at the Brigham, says it was even difficult for experts to identify the bad information. What I found was kind of especially insidious is that these models give these incredibly fluent responses that seem to be coming from someone who understands what they're saying, but the errors tended to be mixed in with correct responses. Bitterman says ChatGPT has potential, but it's not ready to be used in clinics just yet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Preparations are underway for people moving into Boston on September 1st. That includes warning people who plan to drive moving trucks on Starro Drive and Memorial Drive. The Department of Conservation and Recreation plans to install new cars-only signs. The new signs will have rubber hanging at the bottom to warn drivers who may not have seen them and hopefully avoid crashes into the low-clearance bridges. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Red Sox begin a three-game series with the Houston Astros tonight at Fenway. The Sox lost to the L.A. Dodgers yesterday 7-4. Partly sunny today, it'll be in the mid-70s, mostly cloudy with fog overnight, temperatures in the 60s, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance for showers in the morning. It'll be in the 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Some Republicans have been looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. And then, at a presidential debate with eight alternatives, the candidate who grabbed the most attention was the guy who acted the most like Trump. We have some analysis in a moment. But first, the original Trump has a court hearing today. The ex-president tried to overturn his well-documented defeat in the 2020 presidential election. The question for the court is whether his failed effort qualifies as a crime. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin will rule on whether this trial about the last presidential election should be held before the next one. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson has been following the story. Kerry, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What is the possible range of dates for a trial? It's a huge range, Steve. Trump's lawyers have asked for this trial in D.C. to take place in April 2026. They're citing 11 million pages of documents and other evidence they need to sift through. They've compared it in court papers to the height of the Washington Monument and reading the book War and Peace multiple times. But Prosecutor Molly Gaston says that's just silly. She says many of these pages are duplicates. Some already came out through the House Select Committee investigation last year, and the special counsel team 
claim says it's ready for trial in January 2024. Ultimately, the decision will be up to Judge Tanya Chutkin. Well, how does she approach this case as best you can determine? You know, I've interviewed about six people for a a profile of her, and they felt certain she would schedule Trump's D.C. trial for next year, well before the presidential election. The judge is very comfortable in the courtroom. She had about 40 trials as a lawyer, mostly during her time as a public defender. Friends say she's going to keep the defendant's rights, Donald Trump's rights, at the top of her mind. But she's pretty no-nonsense and is not going to be a fan of delay. Here's what her longtime friend Carl Racine told me. The judge has made very clear uh, that she wants to move this case in a way that doesn't compromise fairness and justice for the defendant. Another legal source told me he thought the trial might be scheduled for the first four months of next year, meaning that it could end well before the Republican National Convention next summer. You know, Trump has made such striking statements on social media that I'm surprised we have not already heard back from the judge about them, because didn't she warn Trump's lawyers not to make inflammatory or threatening statements? She absolutely did. Judge Chutkin says she's not issuing a gag order against Trump, but she's already said his First Amendment rights must yield in some respects. So there's going to be no intimidation of witnesses or statements that pollute the D.C. jury pool. The judge has said if Trump violates those rules, she may move the trial date up to prevent additional damage to witnesses and prospective jurors. But in reality, Steve, it's going to be hard for her to fashion a punishment for Trump since he's running for the White House again. Is she really going to fine him or lock him up pending trial? We all know Trump is likely to test the limits of the judiciary, just like he has done with the executive branch. So if this trial is months away at best, what happens in the meantime? A bunch of motions fighting on paper, a little boring maybe, but very important. The former president has signaled he might try to get some of the evidence thrown out before trial. He also might try to move the case to a place like West Virginia. But here in D.C., it's really hard to do that before jury selection even begins. Most judges here find they can come up with an impartial jury using a special questionnaire and some back and forth. Some of these motions might aim to delay this case, a favorite tactic we know of Donald Trump. But over nine years on the bench, Judge Tanya Chutkin can anticipate many of those moves. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Kerry, thanks as always for your insights. My pleasure. During last week's Republican presidential primary debate, one candidate in particular seemed to get under the skin of almost everyone on stage. Vivek Ramaswamy, the self-proclaimed anti-woke businessman who made millions in the pharmaceutical industry, has pitched himself as a younger Donald Trump with more extreme right-wing views. It is not morning in America. We live in a dark moment, and we have to confront the fact that we're in an internal sort of cold cultural civil war. Ramaswamy remains far behind Trump in polls, but he has at times come close to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for second place. Joining us now is GOP strategist Dave Carney. Dave, Ramaswamy calls climate change a hoax. He says he would cut U.S. funding for Ukraine. He's even raised questions about what uh, really happened on 9-11. How has that been playing with Republican voters? He's had, you know, tremendous success so far going from, as he likes to say, 0.0% in the polls into the third place or in some polls, second place. Uh, The problem is those ideas limit cap his growth. And when, you know, voters or, you know, the majority of Republican primary voters want President Trump and being the mini me Trump. Uh, even if you're uh, more outrageous, doesn't seem to me 
to be a strategy that's going to get you to be the number one opponent uh, of Trump and then get you across the finish line. They cap it. They um, cap him with with Trump voters or Republicans with in general. Republican primary voters. Okay. I mean, the nine eleven stuff and you know the you know um, the inconsistency with his foreign policy. I, you know, uh, declarations, you know, what he wrote in his book about Trump, what he says now. I mean, there's so many inconsistencies. And this is why it's very difficult for a first time candidate who's never been vetted by the media and opponents. Um, you know, your whole, you know, all the things you've mused about in the past um, now, you know, could come back to roost. But he has a, he's building himself a ceiling where he'll never surpass hmm. Trump by trying to mimic Trump. Um, you know, trying to recreate the 16 uh, energy that Trump brought with a lot of, you know, bold ideas. Mexico's going to pay for the wall, things like that. Why would someone go with a person talking about it when they go with a president that they like and thinks under duress from the Justice Department and accomplish a lot of the things he wanted to do or tried to yeah. or Congress you know, would let him? You know, at several points during last week's debate, uh, Ramaswamy seemed to irk some of his competitors. I know former uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie said that he sounds uh, like a like chat GPT. And then Mike Pence called Ramaswamy a rookie. Do these better known Republicans see him as a, a real threat? I mean, he, he's on stage, so he's a threat. But do they see him as a threat? Oh, of course, because there's only say there's, you know, half the vote available to the non-Trump voter. And, uh, you know, when you have a guy who's a showboat, you know, who is, you know, they think very shallow, who, you know, is just sort of going from, you know, the tw we're going to make it be 25 year old, you know, to vote, stuff like that. We're going to change the Constitution to, you know, to have a civics test where you got to be 25 to vote. Um, and, and those kinds of, you know, those are those are not serious, serious policies with the economy that we're facing with inflation, with what's going on with China and in the in the rest of the world. So he you know, he just but he's taking up oxygen. He is dominating a lot of conversation, non-Trump conversation. And so it makes it more difficult for every anyone else to get their message out. Isn't rookie, I know Pence used the word rookie, I think he uses it as a pejorative. Isn't rookie a badge of honor with the MAGA crowd, not being a, a DC insider? Yeah, but the MAGA in the MAGA crowd is for Donald Trump. Hmm. You know, that's that's the point. You know, that's where they are, and um, they're now for an experienced president uh, who will drain the swamp. David Cardney, Republican strategist. Thank you very much, David. You bet. Bye bye. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The BRICS group is about to get bigger. So, what does that mean for the biggest BRICS economy, China? NPR's John Ruich reports. Traditional South African music set the mood at the BRICS summit in Johannesburg last week, and at the end of the three-day meeting, an air of confidence. Chinese leader Xi Jinping called the expansion of the group historic. It is necessary to enhance the representation and voice of developing countries in global governance and support them in achieving better development. We must adhere to genuine multilateralism and build global partnerships for development. Six new members were approved to be added in January. Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. It is, I would argue, it is a win for China. China is the champion of uh, expansion. Mihaela Papa is a senior fellow at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. So this is the first time that actually China managed to push forward with its priority agenda, both trade and expansion. 
So uh, that means that we are likely to see more of China's engagement and interest with BRICS than we saw before. The BRICS now represent what some see as an expanded front in Beijing's tussle with the United States and the West for influence and in setting global governance values. One area where the BRICS agreed this time to move forward aligns neatly with China's interests, as well as those of Russia and incoming member Iran, finding alternatives to the dollar-dominated financial system. Here's South African President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking at the end of the meeting. As BRICS, we are ready to explore opportunities for improving the stability, reliability and fairness of the global financial architecture. Beyond the six incoming members, many others have expressed interest in joining BRICS, which notably does not include any Western nation. But Daniel Bradlow, an expert on global governance at South Africa's University of Pretoria, says it's wrong to see BRICS as an anti-Western bloc. It's countries that are saying we don't want to be forced into the position of having to choose between the West and China, but we want good relations with both, and we want to have enough of a bargaining chip that we can keep that independence for as long as possible. But expansion complicates things. It means there will be 11 voices instead of five. How the BRICS approach political disagreements, like the China-India border dispute, for example, will be a test. And while the members may all agree broadly that current arrangements for global governance aren't working well, Bradlow says it's hard to see them coming together at this point on what to do about it. The West should see it as a symptom of the, the frustration and the disillusionment that countries in the global south have with the current arrangements in the world. And he says he hopes the West responds constructively and chooses to engage. John Ruich, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, in areas of the country that have seen record-breaking heat waves this summer, districts without air conditioning are bracing for the impact on kids and classes as the school year starts. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. The pandemic exposed new lows in basic trust in government and in other people, making it even harder for medical workers to do their jobs. That was the first time in my career that I had people say, no, we, we don't believe you. What the sharp political divide in the U.S. has cost us, including lives. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. A mix of sun and clouds today, and we'll have a high temperature near 75. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio, and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen, 
CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Prescriptions for Ozempic have skyrocketed in the past year. The drug treats diabetes. It can cause dramatic weight loss. But many people taking this medication have noticed an interesting side effect. Here's Michaeline Dukleff. During the COVID pandemic, James Paul Grayson felt like his health was crumbling. He gained nearly 40 pounds, got diagnosed with high blood pressure, prediabetes, and a heart issue. Man, this sucks. <laughs> you know, I got all these meds I never had to take before. So I was actually pretty depressed about my health. Grayson is 73 years old. He's retired and lives in Clayton, Oklahoma. He didn't want more heart troubles, so he started taking Ozempic. The medication is extremely expensive, but it worked right away. Basically, I started losing weight almost uh, immediately. Then he noticed something else. He went out to dinner, ordered a beer, and... I could barely finish it. It didn't feel or taste good. Sometimes you drink a beer, it's like, oh my God, it tastes so good. Guzzle, 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 guzzle. Well, I didn't feel like guzzling. I just barely felt like sipping it. This wasn't like Grayson. While he never thought he had a problem with alcohol, he did like drinking beer and wine. You know, I could consume a whole bottle of wine in an evening without trying real hard along with a bag of chocolates. <laughs> but the medication zapped his motivation for both the chocolate and the wine. I'd have wine in the refrigerator or whatever. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll have some wine. And then I just kind of forget about it. I think I just watch more TV. He might not have realized it, but Grayson was likely experiencing a change in the release of dopamine inside his brain. Dopamine is a chemical that makes us want or crave things. Christian Hendershot is a psychologist at the University of North Carolina. He says that many people taking Ozempic or another version called Wegovy have had similar aversions to alcohol. There's really been a, a large number of clinical and anecdotal reports coming in. It's really from across the country, just suggesting that people's drinking behaviors are, are changing and in some instances pretty substantially. He's leading one of six clinical trials looking at whether these weight loss medications can help treat alcohol use disorder. There seems to be almost a satiety effect where people either decide not to initiate drinking or if they've started, that they don't feel the need to continue. And here's what's even more surprising. It's not just with alcohol. Same things have been reported for cigarette smoking. In other words, Ozempic may curb many different types of cravings, including nicotine and opioids. Although there have been only a few studies in people, scientists have been studying this effect in rats for more than a decade. So quite a long time now. That's Elizabeth Gerahog. She's a pharmacologist at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. She and her colleagues have shown that Ozempic reduces binge drinking in rats and prevents relapses in animals addicted to alcohol. We see a reduction on alcohol consumption by over 50%, which is quite dramatic. So how does a weight loss medication reduce alcohol cravings? Alexander D. Felice Antonio is a neuroscientist at Virginia Tech. She says the mechanisms in the brain that cause people to overeat overlap with those that cause addiction. In particular, she says, foods with lots of sugar and fat increase dopamine in a specific part of the brain in the center that causes motivation. That increase in dopamine is actually really similar to one that we see after nicotine consumption or after alcohol consumption. All addictive drugs increase dopamine. 
that that really is like the hallmark of an addictive drug. Here's how that dopamine works. Imagine for a second taking a bite of a warm, gooey chocolate chip cookie. That bite triggers a spike of dopamine in your brain. And that spike tells you, oh, hey, go do this again. Take another bite. The same thing happens if you have a gulp of beer. Dopamine spikes and tells you, take another gulp, have more. But studies in people show that ozempic-like drugs reduce the dopamine released in both cases, makes the spikes much smaller, so you slow down and end up sipping the beer and taking only one bite of a cookie. This experience has become so common that some doctors are now prescribing Ozempic to treat alcohol use disorder, even though it's not approved for this. Dr. Lorenzo Leggio is the clinical director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. He says that's great if a person also has diabetes or obesity. Absolutely. Speak with your doctor. And if that will help to also carb your drinking, your craving, that will be an added value. The drug maker Novo Nordisk says it's not conducting any clinical trials to test these medications for addiction-related illness. But one small trial suggests Ozempic might not help with alcohol use if you don't have obesity. No medications are going to work for everybody. Even though it's still early, some people are using these medications with the hopes of curbing alcohol consumption. Meg Johnson is one of them. She's a real estate agent in Washington, D.C., and she recently started taking Ozempic both to lose weight and to reduce her drinking. I really did a lot of research before getting into this, so I was fully expecting that. She says the medication has caused a lot of rough side effects, which are common. Those first couple weeks were very much focused on not vomiting, (laughs) making sure I continue to have bowel movements. But nevertheless, the medication immediately reduced her drinking. She says many days... She doesn't even think about having a glass of wine. It doesn't sound as appetizing. Additionally, um, you feel it after a lot harder, too. The, the hangover or general uneasiness feeling comes a lot quicker. Like you've lost a taste for it almost. Yes, truly. Now, she says, the big question is, what will happen when she stops taking Ozempic? Many people regain the weight they've lost, but it's still unknown if they will also regain the desire to drink. For NPR News, I'm Michaeline Ducleff. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBY's Gabriela Emanuel tells us how climate change is increasing the threat in New England from poison ivy. It's 829. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Later today, a federal judge may set a trial date in one of the prosecutions of former President Donald Trump. This one involves the charges brought by special counsel Jack Smith related to the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. Here's NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Federal prosecutors and attorneys for Trump will meet at the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. This marks the first hearing in Trump's federal criminal case for his alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. It includes felony charges tied to the January 6, 2021 attack at the U.S. Capitol. Judge Tanya Chutkin may decide a trial start date. Special Counsel Jack Smith has proposed a trial start of January 2, 2024. But Trump's attorneys have suggested pushing it back until April 2026, long after the 2024 presidential election. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Floridians are being warned to prepare for a hurricane. Idalia is expected to strengthen into a hurricane today in the Gulf of Mexico and come ashore along the state's west coast late tomorrow or early Wednesday. Currently, Adalia is a tropical storm with top-sustained winds of 65 miles per hour. Sarasota, Tampa, and Gainesville are among the areas under a hurricane watch. This is NPR News. Authorities in Florida say a deadly weekend shooting in Jacksonville was racially motivated. A gunman killed three people at a Dollar General store before taking his own life. The three victims were black. The 21-year-old gunman was white. Investigators say the gunman left behind racist writings. Will Brown with member station WJCT is following the investigation. While they have said that they believe that the shooter acted alone, they still want to know more about who he was associated with, whether he had any known affiliations with hate groups and other organizations. The FBI has also said it is open to federal civil rights investigation because they are calling the shooting a hate crime. Authorities say the gunman's weapons were purchased legally and he had no criminal record. They say he did have a past involuntary commitment for a mental health exam. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in Beijing in the latest attempt by the Biden administration to improve relations between the U.S. and China. It's a complicated relationship. It's a challenging relationship. We will, of course, disagree on certain issues, but I believe that we can make progress if we are direct, open, and practical. Raimondo was speaking earlier today in Beijing. Her trip to China follows recent visits by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Criminal justice reform advocates are calling on Governor Maura Healey to move quicker to appoint new members to the state's parole board. The seven-member board is currently operating with just four people. Patty Guerin is a lawyer and member of the Coalition for Effective Justice Reform. She says the board is currently meeting its legal requirements for parole hearings. But they don't have the time to do commutation hearings, to do pardon hearings. People have a right to file a motion to terminate their parole when they've been on parole successfully for years, but they don't have the time and the staff to be able to do all of these things. There have been previous efforts to expand the board to nine members. Police are investigating a shooting at the Worcester Caribbean American Carnival. They say two people were injured yesterday. No arrests were made. The event in Worcester comes the day after eight people were injured Saturday in a shooting near the Boston Caribbean Carnival. 
Resident assistants at Tufts University say they are ready to go on strike tomorrow if the university doesn't agree to pay them a stipend. The strike would coincide with move-in day for first-year students. The RAs have their housing costs covered by the university in exchange for supervising the dorms, but the union representing the undergraduate workers says they also want a weekly stipend to compensate them for their responsibilities. Tufts officials say they want to continue bargaining on the matter. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Los Angeles Dodgers 7-4 yesterday at Fenway. Former Sox player Mookie Betts hit a home run and drove in three runs. Boston lost 2-3 of three to L.A. over the weekend. Tonight, the Sox begin a three-game set with the Houston Astros. Highs in the mid-70s today under partly sunny skies. Tonight, more clouds move in and it falls to lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs back in the mid-70s. There's a chance of showers mainly around mid-morning. It's 64 degrees in Boston. You're WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. As this summer of record-breaking heat waves drags on, millions of students are returning to school in buildings that do not have good air conditioning or have no air conditioning at all. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports on how the heat influences learning. Eric Hitchner doesn't have air conditioning in his Philadelphia classroom. I'm on the fourth floor of a 111-year-old building. Heat rises. But he does have a smart board, a fancy one, that the school invested in during COVID. It tells him the temperature and humidity of the room. Those things are not inexpensive. I would have allocated that money for air conditioning, but nobody asked me. He's clocked temperatures as high as 93 degrees. Even when it isn't that hot outside, his classroom in Building 21, where he teaches high school English, still overheats. I think in uh, September, it's 68 to 72 degrees all day. It is 86 degrees in my classroom and 65 percent humidity. This year, the school district of Philadelphia opted to start after Labor Day, a different approach than past years. The district says the decision was made to, quote, reduce the likelihood that extreme temperatures would impact their instruction. Hitchner School is one of an estimated 36,000 public schools nationwide without adequate AC. That's according to a 2020 report from the Government Accountability Office. Many schools know it's a problem, but other things get in the way. Building 21 got AC units for every classroom years ago. We purchased them, we had them delivered, and then the school district told us that the electric grid couldn't take that. So they sat in storage for all those years, and we've never had another one installed. Jackie Nowicki, a director at the GAO who oversaw the report, says her team found similar things while collecting data and visiting schools for the study. She recalls one Maryland district. The district had refitted some of its schools with air conditioning but they didn't update the pipes and insulation that were serving the HVAC systems. And so that caused moisture and condensation problems in the buildings. And so those school officials were concerned that the moisture and condensation could lead to air quality and mold problems. 
But to remedy those issues uh, would cost over a million dollars for each building. The GAO conducted a nationally representative survey and visited 55 schools in 16 districts. They set out to look at the state of public schools. But the main complaint that kept coming up? Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or HVAC systems. They found that an estimated 41% of districts needed to update or replace HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. You know, if basic health and safety systems like plumbing and air conditioning and ventilation are failing, that should set off alarm bells. For people. Kate King, the head of the National Association of School Nurses, says AC or not, they have seen a higher rate of heat-related illness from students in the past few years. We see that not infrequently, especially kids wearing their new fall school clothes, which are heavy and sweatery in 90 degree heat, and then going out and running around on the playground. King, who is also a school nurse in Columbus, Ohio, says she's always focused on keeping an eye out for students with chronic conditions. Kids with asthma, with sickle cell, extreme temperatures can precipitate attacks. Kids with seizure disorders, even kiddos with diabetes, because when they get dehydrated, it's, you know, a different ball game. But Sometimes even when the classroom has AC, the temperatures are so hot outside that students lose out on learning time in order to cool off. Damara Samudio-Galvan is a first grade teacher. Every day, she oversees a 30-minute recess period for her kids at Aventura Community School in Southeast Nashville. They've been in school since early August with temperatures between 90 and 100 degrees outside every day. She calls them back into the classroom and has the difficult task of getting them to focus for a math lesson. All of them just look completely worn out and miserable. Um, And I always feel terrible because they're so tiny. (laughs) She's had to get creative to keep them focused. All of the kids have to fill up their water bottles and rehydrate when they get inside. And then they take deep breaths to cool down. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. Beekeepers and gardeners in Savannah, Georgia, are on high alert. That's where agriculture officials confirmed on Friday the country's first known nest belonging to the yellow-legged hornet. Here's Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting. On a muggy August morning just outside Savannah, Tim Davis walks past a fountain at the coastal Georgia Botanical Gardens. This is our pollinator garden. It's here that the University of Georgia entomologists and other insect enthusiasts are conducting a pollinator census, basically a snapshot of the number and types of bugs that many plants depend on for reproduction. That's a really pretty scaliaid. A scaliaid wasp is one of them. You can see that yellow on there. That's why they're so hard, but it's got those blue wings on it. Hard, he means to tell a scalia apart from the yellow-legged hornet. We're here this morning to announce the confirmed detection of yellow-legged hornets in the state of Georgia. This is the first time that this has ever been detected in the United States. That's Georgia Agriculture Commissioner Tyler Harper earlier this month at a news conference where he shared that the invasive species was found by a Savannah-area beekeeper in August. Then Friday, Harper announced that state scientists found a nest on nearby Wilmington Island, which they removed. Nevertheless, yellow-legged hornet can continue to threaten honey production, native pollinators, and our state's number one industry, which is agriculture. 
That's a huge concern to Sherry and Bobby Black. The married couple have harvested lots of honey this year from their one-acre garden in the aptly named Savannah suburb of Garden City. Probably about 200 pounds so far all together, not including what we left in the halves for the girls. The girls being what they call their honeybees, who they say face enough threats as it is. We're constantly fighting beetles and mites. So, and on top of this, there's just another enemy. <laughs> oh, man. We need the pollinators. You know, the pollinators are important for our plants, our crops. We don't want anything to come and damage the bees. To stop the damage, scientists with the Georgia Department of Agriculture are doing insect detective work, mapping the locations of individual hornets to see if they can find more nests. A large part of this reconnaissance relies on backyard beekeepers and gardeners. They're urged to report suspected sightings to the state. In addition to yellow legs, these roughly one-inch hornets have a yellow face and a yellow stripe on the abdomen. How the hornets got to Georgia may always be a mystery, says entomologist Tim Davis. There are so many ways in a global economy for an invasive species of any kind to move. So this could have come in a commercial airline flight. It could have come through the ports. In fact, the port of Savannah is one of the busiest on the East Coast. The yellow-legged hornet is a cousin of the bigger Asian giant hornet, which reared its head in Washington state a couple of years ago. There, tracking and trapping has kept it at bay. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah, Georgia. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the ongoing negotiations to reach a new collective bargaining agreement between the United Auto Workers and the big three Detroit automakers. Partly sunny in mid-70s today, mostly cloudy in low 60s tonight. A chance of patchy fog early tomorrow morning, then showers are possible around mid-morning, otherwise cloudy and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, fewer people visited Cape Cod this summer compared to the last couple of years. Paul Nidzwicki is head of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce. He says lodging occupancy dropped more than 10 percent this season, but that was expected following the record number of people who visited the area during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we did expect, now that the rest of the world has opened up and international travel has started again, to see a bit of a drop-off from the last two years, but ahead of the benchmark years of uh, 2018-2019, which were pre-COVID. And that's pretty much what what we've seen. Nitzwicky says locals on the Cape are anticipating a spike in visitors for the Labor Day weekend. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Poison ivy is expected to be one of the big winners when it comes to climate change. That dreaded three-leafed vine is poised to grow faster and bigger and become even more toxic. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports that some New Englanders are already noticing the change. So here I'm just using two garden forks, sticking them in, in the ground. It's a slow aerobic kind of exercise. 
Peter Barron's job is removing poison ivy, and his promise is he'll do it with no chemicals. His clients know him by his nickname, Pesky Pete. Today, he's working in a wooded backyard in Harvard, Massachusetts, using just his hands, a few tools, and gloves that go up over his elbows. Someone said to me, cow birthing gloves. I was like, oh yeah, cow birthing gloves. That's what I'll call them from now on. Even with the gloves, Pesky Pete says he gets that itchy, blistering rash about 10 times a year. But unlike most, he loves this plant. Every year, I always take pictures of the poison ivy as it's blooming. Three bitty, red, shiny leaves. When I first started, it was May 10th or May 11th. And I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to do this. 14 years later, he says the season starts almost a month earlier. In 2023, my first sightings of poison ivy was on April 18th. His guess is that warmer weather explains the shift. Scientists have also noticed changes. One team in the 1990s turned the woods into their laboratory. They built towers that could pump carbon dioxide into the air. Around large circular forest plots, they pumped in enough of the gas to simulate what they thought 2050 would be like. Sort of a cylinder of the future is the way I like to call it. William Schlesinger is an emeritus professor at Duke University. He says the plants grew faster with more CO2, since plants essentially use the gas as food. But poison ivy was the speediest of all, growing 70 percent faster than without the extra carbon dioxide. Oh, it's, it was the max. It, it topped uh, the growth of everything else. That's not all. The researchers discovered the poison ivy became more toxic and the individual leaves got bigger with more CO2. Now, Jackie Mohan, an ecologist at the University of Georgia, is looking at how poison ivy responds to warmer soil. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. She says it's partly because a warmth-loving fungus helps feed poison ivy roots. Plus, the vines don't need a sturdy trunk or branches. They can put all their energy into getting bigger. Bigger and nastier. But is this happening out in nature right now? Mohan and Schlesinger say they think so, but... It's a remarkably understudied species. It's a nasty plant to work on. In the suburbs west of Boston, Dr. Lewis Kushner sees just how miserable it can be. Some people will have a tremendous allergic reaction to poison ivy, and others just don't seem to mount any allergic reaction at all. He works with 10 dermatologists. Every one of us sees it every week. Uh, and I mean the kind of cases where people can't sleep and are covered with blisters. The kind of poison ivy that takes people to the emergency rooms, that has been getting more common. He suspects that's due to the pandemic nudging people into their gardens and onto trails. In the town of Lincoln, Gwyn Loud has noticed the hikers and the poison ivy. Loud is on the board of the Lincoln Land Conservation Trust. The leaf edges are smooth, and it's got one center vein. With gloves on, she pulls a bit of poison ivy, now deep green since it's later in the summer. So here's some, right here. Are you able to quantify how much it's grown in the 55 years you've lived here? There is a lot more all over the place. And she's noticed another change, too. The leaves can be the size of a book. Look at these huge leaves down here. Huge. 
Loud says she wishes there was hard data, but from what she's seeing, it's not good news for the roughly 80 percent of people who are allergic to poison ivy. And scientists worry it could disrupt the delicate balance in the forest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. You can test your skill at identifying poison ivy with our poison ivy quiz. It's at WBUR.org. And we'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England all this week here on Morning Edition. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on protests in Libya over a meeting between that country's foreign minister and her Israeli counterpart. It's 8.50. The pandemic exposed new lows in basic trust in government and in other people, making it even harder for medical workers to do their jobs. That was the first time in my career that I had people say, no, we, we don't believe you. But the sharp political divide in the U.S. has cost us, including lives. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. A federal judge in Georgia is expected to set a trial date today for former President Donald Trump, who's charged with trying to overturn the 2020 election. Police say the gunman who killed three people in Jacksonville, Florida this weekend targeted the victims because of their race. And Russian security officials say a former Russian employee of the U.S. consulate there stole information about the country's actions in Ukraine for U.S. officials. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Mid-70s today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. Temperatures fall to the low 60s tonight and it grows more overcast. Tomorrow, showers are possible in the morning, otherwise cloudy and back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Negotiating for a four-day work week? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab offers a modern approach to wealth management with personalized financial planning to meet an investor's specific needs and the flexibility to adapt as those needs change with time. Learn more at schwab.com plan. From Marketplace in Washington, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer, in for David Brancaccio. First, the Biden administration's charm offensive in China continues today with a visit by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. She's the third high-ranking U.S. official to visit Beijing this summer. The message is the same. The U.S. wants to maintain strong economic ties with the world's second largest economy. How remains the unanswered question. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The agreement includes a so-called information exchange that the U.S. says will aim to reduce misunderstandings over national security policies affecting trade. One major sore spot is a U.S. ban on advanced microchip exports. China accuses the U.S. of protectionism. The Biden administration has stood firm over its decision, and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo today again said trade decisions on national security grounds are not up for discussion. 
Still, the U.S. is seeking to assuage some Chinese concerns over economic and trade policies, and to make it easier for American businesses to operate in the world's second-largest economy. Secretary Raimondo and her Chinese counterpart agreed to meet at least once a year to maintain dialogue, and a separate working group is to meet twice a year over trade and investment issues. The Biden administration has undertaken a summer-long charm offensive on China, with earlier visits by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. United Auto Workers voted on Friday to authorize a strike. The union is negotiating a new collective bargaining agreement with the big three Detroit automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. It's important to say here that workers aren't on strike yet. But they have given union leaders the authority to call a strike if necessary. One of the UAW's demands, a four-day workweek at five-day workweek pay. Here's Marketplace's Matt Levin. General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis have all posted billions in profits on recent earnings reports. That's emboldened the UAW, says Harry Katz, professor of labor relations at Cornell. The auto companies are making significant profits because of steady sales. So the auto companies would have a lot to lose if the auto workers went on strike. Katz says the union likely has bigger priorities than the four-day work week. Wage bumps of at least 40 percent, restoring guaranteed pension benefits. But getting a 32-hour work week without losing pay could help the UAW handle the transition to a green economy. Sharon Block is a professor at Harvard Law School. It's a well-known fact that Assembling electric vehicles takes fewer person power hours than an internal combustion engine. The EV transition poses another challenge for auto workers, unionizing the plants that build EV batteries. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up less than a tenth percent. The Dow, S&P and Nasdaq futures are higher by more than a half percent with the Dow future up more than 150 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is up at 4.2%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. Lebanon is in the midst of a huge economic crisis. Inflation is in triple digits, and the banking system has collapsed. The country's currency, the Lebanese pound, or lira in Arabic, is in freefall. But one industry, wine, is booming, despite everything. The BBC's Hannah McCarthy reports. I'm at a wine fair in Beirut. Lebanon currently produces over 7.5 million bottles of wine every year. And for decades, it has been one of the country's few successful exports. Even now, while Lebanon is going through a severe financial crisis, new wineries have been continuing to open. Three years ago, we just started experimenting with different types of grapes and varieties. But last year we actually said that's it, let's do our own wine. So this year we're releasing our first two wines under here. Here it means she in Arabic. Despite the interest in Lebanese wine, power cuts and the banking crisis have created major obstacles for people like Michelle Shami who are launching their new wines. 
you go to work on something and then there's no electricity, just trying to get money out of the bank is difficult. Just so many struggles that I guess is just native to here and that people don't understand unless they've actually been here. So yeah, these are the, the, the tough things about living here and making wine here. <laughs> Gaston Hoshar's family has been making wine in Lebanon for three generations. Chateau Mazar is bottled on a mountain overlooking the town of Ghazir and today can be found in stores around the world. Today we ship worldwide all the wines except the Korai, but uh, they all exist a little bit everywhere. We're not concentrating on specific markets. Market goes down, you have others which compensate. Gaston knows all about the challenges of making and exporting wine from Lebanon. Today you have nearly 60 producers in Lebanon. It's not an easy market. It's not at all easy to export. My father used to travel five, six months a year. Uh, this year is challenging because you have a lot of things happening all over the world between inflation and the Ukraine, uh, Russian war. But uh, we have a certain resiliency. The one thing Gaston isn't worried about is demand for Lebanese wine. People who are knowledgeable in wine realize that these tastes are not often found all over the world. And so therefore, if they want these characters, then they have to buy Musar. And therefore, the demand is there, and I'm not afraid it's going to disappear. Amidst all the economic gloom in Lebanon, Lebanese wine looks set to remain one of the few bright lights for the country for some time to come. In Lebanon, I'm the BBC's Hannah McCarthy for Marketplace. A lot can happen in a day when it comes to the economy and all its moving parts, from workplace culture to markets. We've got you covered here on The Morning Report and in the evening. You can check out Marketplace with Kai Rizdahl on public radio, podcast or at marketplace.org. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.